Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called On the Way of St. Francis. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, June the 26th, 2016. The Gospel this week begins a long section right in the middle of Luke's story that scholars call his travel narrative, or journey to Jerusalem. The tone and content of this section clearly pivot from what has come before. Luke 9.51 says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Luke repeats this idea at least eight times in this 20-page section, emphasizing that Jesus is heading inexorably to Jerusalem. The travel narrative ends with the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, where Luke says in 1947 that every day he was teaching at the temple. As with most important journey stories, think of Homer, Abraham, or the Israelites. Luke is not primarily interested in geography. This isn't a travel log. If you fire up a Google map, you'll see that the path that Jesus takes to Jerusalem is erratic at best. Luke is more interested in theology than geography. For three years, Jesus had been on the way, a road, a path, or a pilgrimage. Yes, the crowds were amazed. The rumor mill had been in overdrive. But the way of Jesus, who himself becomes the way for us, was also a very difficult path. When Jesus taught in his hometown, the village that had helped to raise him took offense at him and said he was demon-possessed. When his family saw the raucous crowds that hounded him, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. John writes that even his own brothers did not believe in him. The disciples grumbled and took offense. Who can accept his hard sayings, they wondered. And so John says that many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. In last week's gospel, Jesus was run out of town. And in this week's gospel, he was denied passage through a Samaritan village. At the very end, except for the women, his closest disciples denied that they knew him and fled for the tall grass. So, in Jerusalem, his journey ends with what we now call the Via Dolorosa, the way of grief, sorrow, pain, and suffering. The sent one of God came to show us the love of his Father, and so, at the end of his life, he set his face to Jerusalem, knowing that there he would meet his final conflict with the religious authorities and the Roman state. This week, my wife and I begin our own pilgrimage. It's our third pilgrimage, walking the Via Franzagina, or the Way of St. Francis of Assisi, who lived from 1181 to 1226. God willing, we'll walk 330 miles in 28 days, beginning in Florence, passing through Assisi, and then ending in Rome.
We'll travel about as light as is possible. Backpacks with not much more than two shirts, two shorts, two socks. St. Francis is one of the most revered saints in Christian history, but any account of his life faces two very formidable challenges. The complexity of the medieval sources and the saintliness of a subject who evokes hagiography. A few years ago, I read the new gold standard on St. Francis. It's by Augustine Thompson. It's called Francis of Assisi, a new biography from the year 2012. Thompson's rigorous historical method moves beyond mere speculation and pious edification, and yet does so with a genuine reverence for his subject. Francis's family was wealthy, but not aristocratic. In 1205, Francis renounced his family and wealth in favor of a vagabond life as a lay penitent, centered around serving lepers, <clears throat> manual labor repairing churches, <clears throat> and fervent devotion to the Eucharist. In 1208, two followers joined him, and the three of them sought priestly advice on what they called their form of life. <clears throat> And most famously, on April the 16th, 1208, the priest opened the missal to th three random passages that would later define the Franciscan order. Go and sell all you have, take nothing for the journey, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. For many years after this official conversion to radical renunciation, the Franciscan movement was fluid, in free form. By the year 1216, Francis was a celebrity, and by 1219, he was even known in faraway England. Nonetheless, there was still no official rule or governance until 1221. Therein lies one of the many complexities of what Thompson calls a deeply conflicted Francis. How do you bottle the lightning of a growing international and dynamic mass movement led by a famous figure who, in fact, lacked the skills and temperament of organizational leadership? So Francis resigned as head of the movement in 1220, but everyone knew that he held all the power. How could he be less than all and subject to all if he had to judge others as their leader. Francis never made peace with the necessary transformation of his movement into a regularized institution. What emerges in Thompson's telling, thank God, is not an inimitable figure who transcends history, and not some cuddly figure who was nice to the animals, but a normal human being who grappled deeply with the way of Jesus to give all, take nothing, and embrace the cross. Our own pilgrimage that begins this week will be a pale and even artificial imitation of the way and the ways of St. Francis. Even so, we'll follow an ancient ritual that started not long after the last days of Jesus in Jerusalem 
and that remarkably continues today. That is, reenacting his own pilgrimage to the Father. In fact, today, every Friday, the Franciscans lead a procession that walks the Via Dolorosa. When we get to Rome, if the line isn't too long and the sun isn't too hot, we hope to walk through the Vatican doors of mercy. Back on December the 8th, 2015, Pope Francis declared an extraordinary year of mercy. He began the year of mercy with a symbolic ritual, knocking on the massive bronze doors of the Basilica of St. Peter and then walking through them. Whereas the doors are usually sealed, this jubilee year the Vatican expects about 10 million pilgrims like my wife and me to walk through those same doors. The symbolic significance? I am the door, said Jesus in John 10, verse 7. And so Pope Francis prayed, You are the door through which we come to thee, inexhaustible source of consolation for everyone. To pass through the holy door, said Pope Francis in his homily, means to rediscover the infinite mercy of the Father, who welcomes everyone and goes out personally to encounter each of them. Indeed, that is our own pilgrimage prayer and the real destination of walking the way of St. Francis. For books this week, I review a title by Margot Jefferson. Her book is called Negro Land, a memoir, New York Pantheon Books, 2015, 248 pages long. Margot Jefferson, born in 1947, professor of writing at Columbia University and a winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism, was born and raised in Negroland. That's her evocative neologism for the black bourgeoisie of Chicago. In her telling, Negroland is populated by the elite of the colored race, the colored aristocracy, the so-called blue vein society, the talented tenth, whose experience was one of privilege and plenty. I am a chronicler of Negroland, she writes, a participant observer, an elegist, dissenter, and admirer, sometimes expatriate, ongoing interlocutor. Jefferson's father was the head of pediatrics at Provident Hospital, the nation's oldest black hospital. Her mother was a social worker and socialite. Growing up in Negroland, you learn that whites would be just as happy if you were returned to indigence, deference, and subservience. You were variously indulged, patronized, and resented as unwelcome pretenders. You were also taught that most other Negroes should have emulated you, but in fact behaved in ways that encouraged racial prejudice. So, in Negroland, says Jefferson, you developed what she calls a hyper-conscious identity that meant nothing about us is taken for granted by anyone anywhere in the world, especially not by your own self. 
you had to bear a so-called double consciousness, a term she uses at least three times. You were simultaneously entitled and disenfranchised. In a letter from 1944, for example, her mother writes to a friend about how happy she was and that, quote, sometimes I almost forget that I'm a Negro. Almost, but not quite. As a so-called third race, Jefferson loved her black heritage, but was alienated from much of it because of her class privilege. She had much more in common with upper-class whites, but envied, feared, hated, and disdained them. Her descendants included both the belittled and despised and those who had been rewarded. In Negro land, then, you grew up with many selves, or what she calls a constructed self, with many components, the texture of your hair, the shape of your nose, the flare of your nostrils, the size of your lips, various tones of skin color, your diction, and then the social shapers of ethnicity, class, gender, education, history, institution, family, and friends. Sometimes Jefferson reproaches herself as an ingratiating little integrationist. Has she constructed and deconstructed herself well or poorly? At other times, she diffuses her angst with humor and irony. There's also despair and suicidal ideation. Most of all, there's no off switch. Rather, there's a sense of melancholic fatigue about having to think about race almost all the time. Jefferson's memoir is a more nuanced reflection about race than the rage and despair of Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me. It reminded me of the work of two other Pulitzer Prize winners. First, The Warmth of Other Suns, 2010, by Elizabeth Isabel Wilkerson, which tells three very different stories about black people who migrated out of the South including a surgeon who was not allowed to operate on white people. And secondly, Eugene Robinson's book, Disintegration, The Splintering of Black America, also 2010, which argues that there's no single interpretive narrative about blacks in America. Robinson proposes that black America has fragmented into four distinct groups that are increasingly distinct separated by demography, geography, and psychology. They have different profiles, different mindsets, different hopes, fears, and dreams. He says there's first of all an enormous middle class, then transcendence like Oprah, Obama, and Tiger Woods. A third category he calls emergence, who are made up of immigrants from Africa and the Caribbean, and then blacks in biracial marriages. And then finally, a fourth category, which he calls the profoundly isolated abandoned. Margot Jefferson's book is thus a warning about making gross generalizations and a reminder about just how complex and subtle are the categories of race, class, and gender. Beyond our shifting self-identities, she concludes with an even deeper question. Am I someone whose character and behavior do not hold the world back? 
Have I made a viable life for myself? However tempted she is to dismantle this constructed self of mine because she thinks she did it badly, or to declaim that the human psyche is pathetic, she concludes with appreciation for the wise response of her therapist, who said, It's what we have, Miss Jefferson. It's what we have. A remarkable memoir by Margot Jefferson. It's called Negro Land. For movies this week, I review a short documentary called Inspired to Ride from the year 2015. If you are an adventure junkie of most any sort, you might like this 83-minute cycling documentary. And even if you're not, the scenery in this movie is well worth watching. The film covers the 2014 Trans-America Bike Race, of 4,233 miles across 10 states, from Astoria, Oregon to Yorktown, Virginia. The race is unsupported, and there's no prize money. When your frame cracks, your tire blows, or your chain breaks, you're on your own. And good luck with that. There are no stages, no checkpoints. In this version of the race, 45 cyclists began, and 25 of them finish. Most of them ride 14 to 16 hours a day. There were several ordinary looking people in this race, one of whom took 45 days to finish. That's a mere 100 miles a day. But then there is Mike Hall of Wales, the fastest man to cycle around the world, who finished in 17 days, which averages out to 238 miles a day. And Juliana Burring, the fastest woman to cycle around the world, who started cycling only two years ago. So, saddle up and bicycle on. A documentary film, I watched it on Netflix streaming, it's called Inspired to Ride. We continue for poetry with our series of poems by John Berryman. This is Address to the Lord, number nine. Surprise me on some ordinary day with a blessing gratuitous. Even I have done good beyond their expectations. What count we then upon your bounty? Interminable. An old theologian asserts that even to say you exist is misleading. Uh-huh. I buy that second-century fellow. I press his withered, glorifying hand. You certainly do not, as I exist, impersonating as well the meteorite and flaring in your sun your waterfall or blind in caves pallid fishes. Bear in mind me who have forgotten nothing, and who continues. I may not foreknow and fail much to remember. You sustain imperial decessitudes at the curb a widow. Address to the Lord number nine by John Berryman.
Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 26th, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. 